0: Hello, and welcome back to The Seminal Catastrophe. Episode 24, Recap. So, yeah, welcome back. It's, uh... It's been a while. In the last episode of the show, I briefly mentioned having started a new job and how that may or may not impact the release of future episodes. Well, some three months and zero episodes later, I guess you might say that this was a bit of an understatement. I deeply, humbly apologize for having left the show for so long, and I will do my very best not to let something like this happen again. And so, in an attempt to make sure that I continue to produce this show in a timely and consistent manner, I'm going to make a few changes to the production schedule. Specifically, for at least the next little while, I'm only going to release an episode every two weeks. Further, these less frequent episodes will probably be a bit shorter on average than before the hiatus. Not as short as this little recap, mind you, but probably no more than about 30 minutes per episode. This may change as time goes on, and ideally I would like to return to releasing an episode every week. But for the time being, it's going to be one episode every two weeks, and on average these episodes will be a bit shorter than before. Okay, let's not linger on with this mea culpa any longer. Let us return to the story of the First World War. Since it's been so long since that last episode, This episode is going to serve as a refresher slash summary of the narrative up until now. This is not going to take very long, as this is just going to be a very general summation of the plot up until now. However, next time, we will not simply continue with the narrative, but rather spend another episode dedicated to unpacking the importance of the last major event we covered, the first Battle of the Marne. We will also spend some time exploring how that battle might have played out differently, and what the consequences of that might have been. But today, let us just quickly sum up the story up until this point. Way back when we discussed the Congress of Vienna of 1815, in our very first episode of the show, we introduced the five quote-unquote great powers of Europe. Britain, France, Prussia, Austria, and Russia. In the intervening century between then and 1914, these five countries had retained their positions as the dominant military, political, and economic powers of Europe. The only changes were that Prussia had unified the states of Central Europe into the new German Empire, and the Austrian Empire had been reconstituted as the Austro-Hungarian Empire, in effect granting the Kingdom of Hungary a co-equal status with Austria proper, and making Hungary a mostly autonomous state within the larger empire. In shorthand descriptions, The period between the final defeat of Napoleon Bonaparte in 1815 and the outbreak of the First World War in 1914 is described as having been mostly peaceful in Europe. However, anyone who has listened to this podcast knows that this description goes far beyond oversimplification, and in reality is flat-out wrong. The period between 1815 and 1914 had seen numerous wars fought on the European continent, with many of these wars involving at least one or two of the so-called Great Powers. And these were no minor border disputes. Quite the contrary. Many of these wars were absolutely enormous in scale, and radically reshaped the countries which participated in them. The Crimean War of 1853-56, to 56, the Second War of Italian Independence of 1859, the Austro-Prussian War of 1866, and finally and most importantly, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871. Combined, these wars resulted in the deaths of upwards of a million people, brought to bear radical new political ideas such as democracy-infused nationalism, and created entire new countries which had never before existed, and which today we take for granted as having always been there. And here, of course, I'm thinking about Germany and Italy. And even when the great powers weren't slaughtering one another's people on the battlefield, Europe blazed with tension and conflict throughout this period. The revolutions of 1848 severely rocked the stability of most of the old absolutist monarchies of Europe, and while most of the kings of these countries retained their thrones, they all soon began to see their power become more and more eclipsed by popularly elected assemblies. Further, and this as you may remember is a particular hobby horse of mine, the atmosphere of international diplomacy in Europe became much more hostile, secretive, and treacherous during the last 30-odd years of the 19th century, due largely to that patron saint of cynical politicians, Otto von Bismarck. This man utterly dominated German, and eventually European, politics, establishing the new German Empire as the most powerful single country in Europe, and himself as its de facto ruler. He had done this, mostly, by luring his rivals into cleverly laid traps and slitting their throats once these rivals had fallen for said traps. With an ambition fueled by the unparalleled skill and might of the Prussian army, within a decade of becoming Prussian foreign minister of 1862, Bismarck had become the chancellor of a united German empire, and had laid nearly half of all Europe prostrate at his feet. The next two generations of European statesmen lived in the shadow of the great Bismarck, creating a culture of backstabbing and brinksmanship in European politics that made it virtually impossible for anyone to indulge in even the slightest bit of trust or sincerity from their rivals. So, as the 20th century dawned, Europe was pretty well primed for war. An explosion of industrialization had produced, among other things, weapons and other engines of war that were orders of magnitude deadlier and more destructive than anything else ever seen in human history. This happened to coincide with a time in which the people of Europe were swimming in a sea of incredibly powerful and radical political and social ideologies, such as socialism and nationalism. Meanwhile, their leaders swirled around one another, wielding long knives just waiting for the right opportunity to pounce on their rivals before they were set upon first. The metaphor of Europe in 1914 as being a powder keg is a bit of a cliché, but clichés stick around for a reason. All that was needed for the European continent and soon thereafter much of the rest of the world, to go up in smoke was a spark. As we all know, either from the podcast or from high school history class, on June 28, 1914, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife, the Archduchess Sophie, were assassinated in the city of Sarajevo by a Slavic nationalist named Gavrilo Princip. This assassination set off a chain of events among the diplomats and politicians of Europe, whereby everyone tried to squeeze as beneficial an advantage for themselves as they could without sparking a giant war. Ultimately, of course, this did not work. The so-called July Crisis of 1914 was defined by statesmen of, at best, mediocre intelligence and foresight, and often downright piss-poor intelligence and foresight, playing a game of mutual brinksmanship, seemingly not realizing until it was far too late that by making harsh demands of their rivals, backed up by the threat of armed force, that they were playing with Pandora's box. Add to that the fact that more than a few leaders in these European countries were downright eager to start a war with their rivals in order to gain territory, security, or prestige. Austro-Hungarian hawks wanted to squash any nascent anti-Austrian coalition building in the Balkans by invading and dismembering their neighbor Serbia. Russian hawks wanted to bolster the power of their Slavic allies in that region, with the specific intention of hobbling, and possibly even destroying, Austria-Hungary. German hawks wanted to prop up Austria-Hungary, and at the same time crush the French and the Russians, so as to secure Germany's dominant position in Central Europe permanently. And French hawks, more than anything else, wanted to avenge the humiliation France had endured during the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 by reclaiming their lost provinces of Alsace and Lorraine from Germany. Only Britain seems to not have any strong pro-war party in its government, but that had less to do with the British as a whole having a more pacifistic worldview, and more because the British did not really have any long-standing grudge with, nor threat posed by, any of the other quote-unquote great powers on the European continent. Not that this would prevent them from being sucked into the wood chipper, much as many British politicians hoped that it would. And so, after a month of mutually escalating threats and provocations, virtually every country in Europe, including all of the five great powers, began declaring war on one another. First, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia in order to punish them for, allegedly, plotting the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and Archduchess Sophie. Russia then demanded that Austria-Hungary back down and mobilized their army to show that they meant business. Germany, whose plans for a potential war against both France and Russia were premised on not allowing either of these two countries a head start on the process of mobilization, then demanded that Russia stop its mobilization, and began mobilizing their own forces to show that they meant business. Whether Russia or Germany would make the next move remained an open question until August 1st, when Germany finally pulled the trigger and declared war on their eastern neighbor. In the meantime, France had begun to mobilize its armies, and when they refused to halt this process after Germany demanded that they do so, Germany went ahead and declared war on France, too. For the moment, it seemed as though Britain might stay out of this brewing war, a possibility we will explore more next time. But then Germany forced Britain's hand by invading the Kingdom of Belgium as a means to bypass French defenses. On the one hand, this was an incredibly provocative affront to the principle of international law. Not only was Belgium's neutrality and independence guaranteed by a treaty signed by Britain, France, and Germany, but Belgium had absolutely no quarrel with Germany whatsoever. By invading Belgium, the Germans had shown themselves willing to inflict suffering, death, and perhaps conquest on a sovereign nation that had done absolutely nothing to offend Germany. But more important for the British specifically— was that one of their overriding foreign policy goals for the last four or five centuries had been to keep the ports of the Low Countries, that is, Belgium and the Netherlands, out of the hands of a hostile foreign power. By invading Belgium, Germany had not only flagrantly breached some of the most fundamental tenets of international law, but had, in effect, directly threatened Britain with possible invasion. When Great Britain declared war on Germany as a direct result of this invasion of Belgium, the brewing war on the European continent truly transformed into the First World War. The first month of this conflict was marked by rapid changes in fortune for all sides, as each of the two alliance systems won massive victories, only to suffer massive defeats just days later. Hostile armies swarmed back and forth across international borders, and soon millions of people were forced to flee their homes as refugees. And for the most part, Despite suffering their fair share of missteps and setbacks, the Germans clearly had the edge. By the end of that first month of the war, German troops had occupied Luxembourg and the majority of Belgium and had driven a massive Russian invasion out of Eastern Germany, inflicting upon them hundreds of thousands of casualties. Worse yet for the Entente, more than a million German soldiers were advancing through France virtually unopposed after inflicting absolutely catastrophic defeats upon the French and British armies the German forces at the furthest edge of this advance were barely more than 30 miles away from Paris. And yet more astonishing than all of that was the unprecedented level of bloodshed the battles of August 1914 produced. The new weapons of war developed in the 40 or so years since the Franco-Prussian War were being employed by armies millions strong, with few if any of the leaders of these armies truly grasping how much killing power their soldiers now possessed. Battles lasting a few days could produce tens of thousands of corpses. Whole units with long and storied histories of valor and success on the battlefield could be ripped to shreds in minutes by machine guns and artillery fire. Men who weeks or even days earlier had marched off to war in pristine uniforms and cheered by onlookers playing triumphant songs had been reduced to filthy, exhausted, starving, and traumatized survivors of a maelstrom of lead, steel, mud, and blood that nothing could have prepared them for, and their ordeal had only just begun. So, I think I'm going to pause things here for now. Hope you guys enjoyed this brief little appetizer of an episode. Next time, we are going to explore what would turn out to be the great turning point of the first phase of the war, the first Battle of the Marne. But, since we already covered that event just before the hiatus, we are going to spend most of that next episode exploring just why this German defeat was so momentous, how that battle could have unfolded differently, and how not just the course of the war, but the course of world history up until the present, might have been entirely altered.